The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TOSD Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also on soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. My name is Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC channels 9 and 29, and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Well, it's a fun time to be a Boston sports fan. Saw a tweet today uh, on uh, Boston Sports Inf, uh, that, uh, a very good uh, place to go on Twitter if you like uh, sports stats like the, uh, the nerd that I am when it comes to this stuff. And uh, since last October, the four major Boston sports teams are playing uh, 700 ball in the postseason, 29 wins and 12 losses between the Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics and Bruins and of course at the very bottom of the stat there's a hashtag for the Boston three party as of course the Bruins are uh, still alive in their quest to win their second Stanley Cup of the decade but flying under the radar from all the uh, the hoopla of uh, spring playoff games are the uh, Boston Red Sox who of course uh, got off to a miserable start but uh, your defending world champs have uh, riding the ship a little bit here at the quarter pole and uh, to talk a little bit about this, we are very glad to be joined on the uh, telephone by uh, Chris Mason from uh, EagleTribune.com. You can also read his uh, work on Salem News, and you can follow uh, Chris on Twitter, at by Chris Mason, and I definitely recommend you do that. Uh, Chris, uh, hello, uh, welcome. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my only regret here is that uh, your, your, uncle, your favorite uncle is not here tonight to, uh, to join us on the uh, Toddcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again, um, and yeah. Bummer, bummer not to have Howie tonight, but hey, I think we can make it through. I think we'll uh, have, have plenty of Red Sox to talk, and I don't think anyone has been happier to fly under the radar than they have been, you know, up to this point. It's one of those things, if the Sox and, the, or, I mean, uh, if the Celtics and Bruins weren't on those playoff runs, I think that bad start could have been magnified far more. You probably could have. You're right, uh, Chris. I mean, the team started off they had that that abysmal uh, West Coast trip to start the year, losing eight out of eleven. They were six and thirteen and did dead last. Actually, I believe they might have had uh, the worst record in the American League and the second worst record in all of baseball. But since then, uh, they have won uh, sixteen of twenty-two, ten of their last twelve, and are now just three games behind first place Tampa Bay, who've been hit with a few injuries. Two and a half games behind the Yankees, who've been playing with injuries the entire season. And you you have to give that squad a little bit of credit. Actually, before we get into the rest Red Sox, uh, Chris, your, your quick thoughts on uh, on how well the Yankees have been playing uh, despite all of the injuries they've been hit with in the early going. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely been impressive. They have basically, they could use any excuse in the book to not be playing well right now, but, you know, haven't, haven't made any. I think they're at 24 and 16 right now. Keep finding a way to win, and, uh, you know, that's just what good teams do. Yeah, there's no question about that. Of course, this is an off day uh, for the Red Sox as we are uh, recording this. And, uh, yeah, the, the team right now is uh, seems to have uh, seemingly dug themselves out of a hole. As I was uh, driving over here, I did catch a little bit of a, a certain uh, uh, hourly uh, baseball program on one of the uh, the big radio stations here in uh, Boston. But uh, despite that, uh, despite what that host might have you believe, uh, he certainly wants to uh, <laughs> continue forecasting the gloom and doom. Uh Chris, what are your thoughts? I mean, having cover, you know covering the team this year, uh, you know, with such the slow start, but uh, the team never really did seem to be panicking themselves, even if maybe some fans and certain hosts were. Uh, but yeah, they've they've straightened things out now, and uh, certainly they've they're hitting a lot better, and the pitching has come around. So just just your general thoughts when they were in the six and thirteen malaise, was, did you ever see any signs of uh, of panic or dismay or anything in the in the clubhouse? I, I don't think there was much panic there. Um, but they finally look like themselves again now, right? Like, this is the team that you were expecting. And the thing I come back to is, honestly, I think it was the spring training program, um, because for those first maybe three turns to the rotation, all the starts were so bad, and the pitchers just didn't look ready. It was like none of them had command, which, you know, you find command by throwing the ball more. And they had a very light spring, and it seems like they've started to figure it out as the season's gone on, you know, with more repetition. And it's funny, it's one of those things where if, 
Cora came right out, like right off the bat, and said, "Hey, we might start slow. Like, we need to give these guys a light workload. Everything they did in October, pitching the eighth inning." I think people would have been like, "Oh, okay." But the whole time he kind of just said it was the same spring training program as last year. And I don't really think it was. Like, if you go back and look, they made more starts last year. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know they just they just uh, didn't have a ton of repetition coming into the season. And obviously now they're all pitching well, and you're like, okay, this is uh, you know who, who these guys are. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I kind of understand a little bit what the organization's approach was to trying to, like, you know, you don't want to burn out some of these pitchers, especially. And I know we, we talked about this when uh, we had you on the uh, the TV show before the season, Chris. You know, Obviously, you're, you're concerned because, you know, Sale has a, a history of wearing down in the, in the second half. David Price has, you know, that unique elbow. And Nathan Avaldi has a, a very unique elbow, having gone through Tommy John surgery not once but twice. And uh, some of these guys are a little uh, hurt right now, a little bit of wear and tear. So you can kind of understand the approach that the, again, from an organizational standpoint, what Cora and the whole coaching staff wanted to do with the pitching staff. But, you know, they did dig themselves a a pretty deep hole. And, you know, granted, they've kind of gotten back to the surface now. But uh, this is one of those things where, I mean, do you think they might try to look back at, at the end of the year? I mean, it's hard to say at this point. But looking back, if you go to the end of the season, is there a chance they might look back and go, you know, maybe we started too slow and maybe we should have ramped up uh, the, the pitchers a little sooner? Well, I think it's certainly hard not to second guess, right? Now that you have the results and you saw that they started 6-13, and 13, right? Like, that is digging yourself a hole, and I think you're bound to second guess that at some point. But, I mean, if they figure it out, if they're healthy late in the year and, you know, win the division, then I don't think you're going to look back on it the same way, right? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, too, especially with the pitching staff, because as I kind of alluded there, uh, there have been some early season injuries. Uh, Nathan Avaldi, uh, you know, getting uh, the debris cleaned out of his elbow and, you know, although I guess in a opt- uh, very a positive sign, I saw him, I guess he was throwing uh, before the game uh, yesterday, not from a mound, but at least just doing a little bit of long tossing uh, ahead of his uh, rehab schedule. And, uh, you know, then you have David Price, who uh, has a little tendonitis flare up in his elbow, and he seems to think, you know, because he knows his arm so well that he's going to be all right as well. So, I mean, you know, on the one hand, I guess here, Chris, should we be concerned that they're they're having these breakdowns so early in the year, despite all the rest they got in spring training? Uh, although, or should we be optimistic that you know it looks like they're going to bounce back sooner than expected? Well, it's interesting with Price. I think there's always going to be some measure of concern, right? Just because, like, his first year in Boston, and then like, I'm sorry, his second year in Boston with the elbow stuff, and I think anytime you have a 33 year old pitcher like that, you're always going to be kind of concerned. But he could not have downplayed this anymore like, than he has. And Cora basically said if it was September, there's no way he would have let me put him on the IL. But because it's early in the year, we're going to do that. So, I mean, that seems like the right approach. He could start as soon as next weekend, too. He has one more bullpen, and if that goes well, then he's going to be back. So uh, I think that one feels like he dodged the bullet. And then, uh, you know, of all the obviously that was the red flag with the contract. Is He's, you know, had arm issues. But he, too, seems to be progressing well. Um, it's one of those that seems kind of like the best-case scenario as far as the recovery has gone right now where there have been no complications. He's right on track. So, um, I don't know, maybe it's one of those things where this ends up being a blessing in disguise in the wrong long run, right, where, uh, you know, these guys don't have as much wear and tear on their arm because they did have these IL stints early in the year. Sure, and of course we've seen Sale in his last couple starts look more like the Chris Sale we're we're accustomed to. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, Rick Porcello, I mean, the rest of the rotation seems to be uh, – very close to midseason form, if not already there. And, uh, in fact, uh, this month, uh, Red Sox starting pitchers had uh, the second-best ERA uh, for the month of May in the American League uh, so far, just, you know, the first 11 games, uh, 3.05. Uh, and then also the bullpen has done tremendously well. Uh, also second-best uh, team ERA uh, for the bullpen uh, this month, uh, 2.40. And uh, where, where did this come from with all these no-names? In fact, the one thing you could say is even when the Red Sox started slowly, uh, it was their bullpen that was kind of uh, keeping them afloat uh, while the starters were sinking. Well, it's interesting because I looked at the back end of the bullpen coming into the season, and I thought, all right, in Barnes, I think Barnes is a legitimately good arm, right? Like, you knew what you had with him. But then Brazier, like, maintaining the success he had last year is huge. And then Workman kind of coming out of nowhere, right, and suddenly turning into a strikeout machine. He's given up two hits in 18 innings all year, Workman, and he's always, like, 
I don't know that I'd call him an afterthought, but he's definitely not somebody you thought of coming into the year as like, okay, this is a like a late inning weapon that they're going to maximize, right? No, I, I would agree with that, Chris. And, uh, the only thing I would probably say is if it was 2014, I think they might have expected this Brandon Workman. But, yeah. yeah, after all the injuries and everything he's been through, for him to come back five years later and uh, be this effective uh, certainly has been a, a very pleasant surprise, uh, uh, no question. Yeah, I think he's got to be someone, too, where you uh, tip a cap to Brian Bannister because they definitely figured something out with his pitch mix. Like, he's throwing the curveball so much this year, basically curveball cutter instead of being four-seamer reliant. And that new pitch mix obviously has him looking like a completely different pitcher. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, would, I would have to agree with that for sure. Any update on uh, Brian Johnson, by the way? Any ch- uh, chance when we might be uh, seeing him again, speaking of the bullpen? Uh, I'm not sure exactly on him. I know he's progressing again, and that, that was one where they thought that it might be a season-ender. So they were definitely happy to you know, be entertaining this conversation in mid-May, like, oh, Johnson might be back soon. Um, but I don't have an exact date on what they're looking for, where he's at. And then some of the other guys, of course, out in the uh, the pen there. Uh, uh, Colton Brewer's been a little bit up and down. Tyler Thornburg, I mean, how much more time will uh, the organization want to give him? My guess is, unfortunately, too much time only because of uh, what uh, Dave Dombrowski traded to bring him here. But uh, he just does not look like he's had it at all. I mean, he, it feels like he's relegated to mop-up duty at this point. Yeah, it really does. I mean, he's going up here. It is 14 earned and 15 and two-thirds. Um but I guess he's someone they're going to, one, I, I think he nailed it with he's going to get a long leash because of what they gave up for him. And two, there's nobody that's really coming through the organization right now that's pushing them to make a bullpen move, right? So why not keep using Thornburg and mop-up duty to, I don't know, maybe see if he can find it? It's not like you have a real like roster crunch at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of that, uh, you did, and uh, by the way, uh, really nice uh, stories you did while you were uh, in uh, Portland uh, earlier this week. Uh, you know, down on the farm here, we we don't think the Red Sox have a whole lot going in the uh, the minor league system, and you were able to track down and uh, talk to uh, three pretty good minor leaguers uh, right now. And we'll start with uh, the pitcher who they uh, drafted last year, Durbin Feltman, who I guess they uh, view as a potential future closure, closer. And I would say, uh, you know, given the state of the bullpen this year, there's there could be a possibility for him to uh, make an impact as early as uh, maybe this summer yeah definitely but he just still has some things he needs to work out up there where um walks have been a big issue for him in command so he's um still working on some adjustments there but the raw stuff is nasty um just having watched him even in spring training like his uh fastball maxes out in the high 90s he's got a wipeout slider so if he can harness that i think there's a real good chance that you'll see him in the bullpen at some point this year and you also uh, had a chance to look at uh, Bobby Dahlbeck, who I know has been talked about for uh, for a couple of years now, at least for those of us who uh, follow, uh, you know, the the minor league uh, stories and, and read the uh, the weekly minor league reports uh, that are out there uh, available. Uh, and and C.J. Chatham, uh, perfectly named for a uh, a New Englander, I would say. Uh, but uh, your thoughts on both these uh, these kids and uh, how far away they are? Because, I mean, they're both like 23, 24. Red Sox have current uh, talent on the roster younger than that. So where, where do you think these guys are in their developments? Well, I think it's one of those things where if the talent, the talent will find a way. Like Michael Chavis coming into this year, it's like, oh, well, where's, where's he going to play? He hasn't played that much second. It's like if you can be a major league bat and you can uh, – you know, be an athlete, they're going to find a spot for you. Um, I felt pretty good about the Dahlbeck story, though. He definitely made me look good. <laughs> My story was there's reason to believe he's primed to break out. And it was just, like, his uh, strikeout to walk has gotten so much better. So it's just uh, a maturing hitter, someone that's seeing the zone. And in uh, I wrote that last week. He's homered five times since. <laughs> There you so go. I was like, all right, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, hey, Bobby might thank you. He may want you to come back and do another story on him. Uh, you know, so they, are the, is he projected pretty much just as a third baseman? I mean, they're not – the organization's not, like, trying him out anywhere else. They've they got him strictly playing at third? Uh, just first and third, uh, corner infielder. He definitely profiles as one. I mean, he has a cannon um, as a third baseman. But anytime you get uh, someone that's, bit, that's that big, too, I think they're going to want to play him at first some. And someone like Chatham certainly, uh, you know, looks like uh, a potential uh, future middle infielder. And, of course, you brought up uh, uh, Chavis. And, 
you know, why don't we, I guess, why don't we segue into Chavis a little bit here? Because uh, I know he was having such a good spring training swinging the bat. And when they uh, had to send him down, you could kind of understand that it was a numbers crunch. But uh, yeah, talk about uh, uh, Chavis's uh, early, you know, his success here and the fact he's had to adjust to a, a position he's really not all that familiar with at second base. Right. He'd only started five games in second in the minors. So it's kind of crazy how comfortable he's looked there on the fly, you know, kind of doing it as they've just like doing it as he goes but um it's interesting with guys like that in spring training because you always have to wonder okay like it looked like he had major league power there right but how much of that is fool's gold like sam travis is someone that always has looked very good in spring training but then that hasn't really translated to the regular season um and travis has more of the look of your prototypical slugging corner infielder as opposed to chavis exactly um but the thing with chavis i think the reason he's going to stick around is that he's gotten uh, a lot more discipline at the play. Like, he's going to swing and miss. That's just uh, where he's at. But he, he hasn't been chasing pitches. Um, and that, that's a big thing for Cora is he doesn't want young guys to expand the zone and just give strikes away. Um, so, yeah, he's hitting 282 right now, but his OVP is over 400. So he's taking his walks. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he sure looks like a major leaguer, doesn't he? He, he sure does. I was going to ask you too, Chris, when you were down at spring training, uh, you get a chance to to talk to Ch- Chavis at all because he seems like a, a little bit of a different uh, a different bird than most uh, you know young players. I mean, he seems uh, well. I mean, I guess he's a he's a bit spiritual and he, he's just I guess he's just got a general approach that's just different from what you might see out of, of most uh, up and coming players. Yeah, definitely. He is uh, he is absolutely a personality. I got to talk to him a little bit at spring training, not a ton, but. Um... Yeah, he's uh, he's not afraid to be himself, and I think that's important. Um, it's funny, like he he seems very eager to talk to us, which is interesting because I mean, so many of these guys that are pro athletes and are doing it for a long time, it's kind of like, yeah, I can take or leave the media stuff. But I mean, he's been great for uh, you know just being readily available and answering questions earnestly. Um, yeah, so that's. That's my uh, scouting report on Chavis. And then over the last week or so, there's been a lot of conversation uh, surrounding Chavis that they would, uh, you know, the Red Sox are going to be trying him out at different positions. I guess he's been shacking some fly balls in the outfield, all, you know, with the potential return of Dustin Pedroia. But now, of course, late word, I guess, uh, from, uh, you know, like maybe earlier today, uh, Pedroia's uh, rehab assignment's been halted up at Double uh, A Portland. And, uh, I mean, what, what, do you, what would you say is the current outlook right now for for uh, for Pedroia, I mean, they haven't. Have I heard that there's like no uh, time infinite? Uh, there's no set date right now when he's going to you know start rehabbing again. Yeah, so he had knee soreness, and they've definitely downplayed it. Um, I remember Cora said he doesn't feel it's something major. He's just being smart about it. We're not going to take chances. But I think any time a player's returned from a rehab assignment with the same injury, right? Like it's his knee. It's not like he I don't know tweaked his shoulder or something. It's it's still that bad knee. So. I mean, I, I think it's fair to be concerned basically any time something like that happens. Um, but they don't really have a, a long-term outlook either. I think it's uh, so. It's 20 days is the most that you can spend on one rehab assignment. So I think they're resetting that clock, and then he'll go back there eventually with a fresh 20 days. Oh, they can re- they if they take a certain amount of time off, it reset. Like so, the six days he was yeah, there think, or whatever doesn't count. Uh, I think they need like five days to reset it, and then you can go back for another twenty. Oh, okay. Well, sadly, I, I think when it comes to Pedroia, they may have to keep you know stopping and restarting that uh, that timetable anyway. I just you know again what he's been through. You look at his age, and it's just uh, and the fact that the knee doesn't seem to be responding to. I mean, I don't think he's even putting Dustin Pedroia type stress on his knees as he would during the prime of his career. And the fact he's having these setbacks just uh, seems very discouraging. Yeah, and I remember he's definitely trying to tone it down. Like, he stopped his pre-pitch jump that he always did just because he obviously sees that as needless pressure on the knee. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and his, his knee is such a such a tough thing to predict. Yeah, and uh, what uh, what about the uh, updates on uh, Brock Colt? Is he supposed to be returning soon uh, between, you know, I know originally he went went on the DL or the, uh, I'm sorry, the injured list, uh, still messing that one up, uh, with the uh, the scratched cornea, then he had a setback with a, a shoulder impingement. Uh, uh, is he supposed to be coming back to the big league roster soon? Uh, I think he'll go back on a rehab assignment relatively soon. But yeah, the shoulder was an interesting thing, just because Cora said he felt it in spring training, but didn't really think anything of it. Um and then, obviously, when he was on that rehab assignment, he aggravated it. 
So I'm not I'm not sure on a timetable for him. Yeah, because now I wonder how this is all going to work with Chavis, uh, you know, uh, depending on when Holt comes back. or I mean, it, it seems like right now Pedroia is not coming back for a while, so maybe second base is Chavis is for the time being. When Holt comes back, maybe they work him into a platoon of some sort. Uh, but do you envision that they might try? I mean, I, I know Chavis has played a little bit of first base, I think, here in the early going, too. Mostly second, but some first, which, again, is a little more where you know he's more of a, a corner infielder type. So where do you uh, where do you see you know him eventually landing? Are they going to try to end up turning him into utility guy as well? Because it feels like the way he's playing right now, you might as well just let him keep playing second base, and and just when Holt comes back, you put him back in his utility role. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, they're certainly trying to make Chavis as versatile as they can, like you just said, with the uh, shagging balls in the outfield and doing everything. But I think the guy on the roster that you look at if um, if Holt comes back and is himself is Nunez. You know, he hasn't given you much of anything this year. He's His OBP is 200 right now. His OPS is 454. So I think it's hard to justify giving him starts over someone like Chavis, who has just been as good as he's been. Yeah, that, that's kind of too bad because I've always been kind of a, a Nunez fan. I was certainly a fan of his last season. And, uh, you know, I know he's got, you know, the, the clubhouse intangibles. I mean, he kind of falls into that category. And I guess while we're talking about players like that, Steve Pierce, uh, another example of, uh, like Nunez, uh, off to a very slow start. Uh, what's uh, what, what does it kind of look like for him? And, I mean, I guess this is where if they, you know, are going to maybe move Chavis and have him play a little bit of first, maybe he falls into the platoon with Mitch Moreland and then that, that edges out uh, uh, Pierce a little bit. Yeah, I mean, those are the two guys, Nunez and Pierce, when there's like, a, all right, something's got to give here. You're looking at those two, and I don't know whether Pierce needs an IL stint or something, or just to go down to Pawtucket and figure his swing out. Because, I mean, the the Apaches have not been very competitive. Um, yeah, he's hitting 117, 24 strikeouts, four walks. It's just, uh, it, it just hasn't been there with him this year. Yeah, and I can't figure it out either. I mean, I don't remember him being uh, quite the the streaky hitter that he, you know, or or at least he wasn't prone to long slumps. I know he wasn't he wasn't a three hundred hitter in his career, and he he's bounced around the entire American League East. But uh, certainly, he's someone who's been a, a pretty steady performer when playing. So this is a little. Uh, a, a little perplexing. I mean, and he's, you know, he doesn't seem to have any kind of an injury or anything going on, uh, does he, that you know of? Or? No, not that I'm aware of, but I think the most alarming thing, too, is that he's hitting this badly and it's in favorable matchups, right? Like, he's still being platooned the same way. He's being put in a position where he should be succeeding and just isn't right now. Yeah. Well, again, we're joined here by uh, Chris Mason from uh, EagleTribune.com. Uh, you can follow uh, at uh, the Twitter handles at Eagle Tribune. Of course, uh, Chris's Twitter handle at by Chris Mason. Uh, he's the uh, beat reporter for the Red Sox. It is. It, it, is that? I mean, the the CNHI is still kind of there, or is it just uh, Eagle Tribune's a good enough uh, moniker for you now? Or yeah, oh, Eagle Trib works. Uh, when I started there, they were trying to get the CNHI thing. Uh... I don't know, branding or whatever. So they just said, introduce yourself as that. But now, three years in, I'm pretty comfortable just telling people that I, I write for the Eagle Trib and Sailor yeah. News and all those other papers. So Well, it's a pretty big newspaper around these parts. I mean, yeah, maybe it's not the Globe or the Herald, but I think, you know, certainly a lot of folks in this area have heard of the Eagle Tribune. It's it's definitely well known on the North Shore. I know that. Oh, yeah, um, that name recognition is certainly stronger than uh, the CNHI one, so sure. we're fine with the Eagle Trip. We'll go with that. Yeah, now, you know, if we had uh, had this conversation a month ago, Chris, I might have started off uh, this uh, Toddcast uh, talking a little bit about my displeasure of the uh, the designation of uh, Blake Swihart for assignment, and, you know, I don't want to get, you know, the reason I kind of buried this part a little deeper into the show is because I don't really necessarily want to dwell too much on it now, because as I look, I mean, when Swihart got DFA'd, uh, the Sox were 6-11, and and they are 16 and 8 since uh, they uh, uh, sent him packing and uh, brought in uh, Sandy Leone. And I know that's not the only reason. There's certainly a lot of other reasons we can get into uh, for the turnaround. But uh, I just I need to get your take again on how badly the Red Sox, uh, you know, kind of mishandled the the Swihart situation. They end up trading him uh, to Arizona for a, a you know a, a, probably a career minor leaguer. I'm betting and. Uh, you know, Swihart now is, uh, you know, even though he's not really a backup catcher, I guess they're using him as a utility guy with the Diamondbacks, but he seems to be, you know, within the last week he's hit a couple home runs. He's starting to find life in his bat, and I, you know, I just, I still kind of wish that, especially, you know, if some of these veterans like Pearson Nunez are sent uh, packing in the next, you know, few weeks, it just feels like there would have been a place for Blake Swihart somewhere on this roster. 
Oh, yeah, and I mean, I think on this roster, he profiled perfect as a backup catcher, um, someone that you can actually use in pinch-hitting situations and feel good about going to the plate. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think they could have mismanaged that kid any worse than they did. Like, going back years, um, you know, he was top-catching prospect in baseball at one point, and then suddenly it's, oh, well, no, you're, you're going to play the outfield. We're not going to give you the time that you need behind the plate. Then, obviously, mangles his ankle, and the whole thing was just kind of a mess. It was kind of directionless, and... At the end of the day, they really did squander an asset. When you have a chip like that and just never can really trade it for anything, never can use it, um, they they absolutely squandered him. Did you ever get a chance? Have you ever? I mean, I, I know Jason Veritek's usually hanging around down in spring training. Did you ever talk to him uh, about uh, Swihart's development at all? Because I, I mean, the two of them kind of compared very well. They're both kind of late bloomers at the position. Both switch hitters. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Did did you ever end up? Uh, have you ever gotten any thoughts from Veritek uh, while Swihart was with the organization? Uh, no, he Veritek really doesn't like doing much media stuff. But um, <laughs> okay, no. my understanding is that he was one of Swihart's biggest advocates. And it's one of those, like, okay, if this guy thinks he can catch, I think he can catch, right? Yeah. Um, but then, I guess on the flip side, you look at it, and, uh, I mean, you look at the way Porcello has turned it around, and Sale to some degree, too. And they're, uh, I looked this up earlier, they're 7-2 and two when Sandy start. So I, there's got to be something to that, too, right? So I, I think in a, in a perfect world, I would have had Leon as the starter in, like, the, the pitcher's guy. You know the, the defensive catcher, and then had Blake as the backup and someone that can come off the bench. You know, and, and what didn't help my argument is, you know, I'm watching the game yesterday and Leon's hitting a, a three-run homer uh, against the Mariners, and in fact, Christian Vasquez is doing exactly what you would want out of a number one catcher. He's hitting two seventy-eight with five home runs. I, you know, you can't really ask. I mean, in this day and age, 2019, that's about as much as you can ask for, and even more from your starting catcher. Oh, absolutely, especially looking around the American League. Like, who's going to be the starter in the All-Star game? Like, who's going to catch that? It would be Sal Perez, but he's hurt. So there's really, like, nobody that jumps off the page at you. I mean, Sanchez, if Sanchez is actually hitting well, but that's obviously a wild card there, too. You know, it's just a there's not a ton of good offense at that position anywhere in the league. Here, let me try to dig myself out of the hole, you know, by not dwelling too much on Blake Swihart, but kind of bringing it more to uh, the forefront, because you were the one, Chris, who just brought up the fact how badly the organization mismanaged Swihart and moved him around to various positions. You know, hearing this talk within the last week or so that, you know, Chavis might be, uh, you know, taking some fly balls in the outfield. Maybe he's going to get bailed out because Pedroia is not coming back anytime soon, but you would almost think that you know, they might have learned their lesson because I know Chavis probably hasn't played much outfield in his career either, let alone second base, but at least you keep him in the infield. I, I think putting him in the outfield, I, I don't want to dare say it, it could be another Swihart experiment gone bad, but, you know, I just, uh, it, it kind of feels like, is it just a is it just a way to ensure that they're going to be able to keep his bat in the lineup? I, I mean, I think so, but I, I think Swihart's different because if you're catching, that's got to be kind of like an all-or-nothing thing, right, where, all right, this is what you're working on, you're going to develop as a catcher, and I do think that was a freak injury in the outfield, whereas if you have uh, like a position player on the field and you can try and make him more versatile, like there's a reason that some of these super utility guys can play the infield in the outfield. Um, so I don't really have a problem with them trying that with Chavis. The only thing that would scare me, though, about that, what you said, is that I'm, I'm willing to bet that if Chavis was going to play in the outfield, it might be left field at Fenway, which they would look at and go, well, he doesn't have a lot of, to cover out there. But that's exactly probably what they thought when they put Swihart out there. And, of course, we all know all the odd little uh, you know twists and turns out there. It's a place where if you're not an experienced outfielder, you can do exactly what Blake Swihart did. And, I mean, you know, Chavis, yeah, maybe he's played the field more, but that's still... You know, you go up against, you know, you got that short distance to the wall out there, you know, no foul territory. And I could just sort of envision something kind of freaky like that happening again to a guy who, you know, frankly, isn't taking a lot of balls over in that part of the field. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, you always wonder, worry about left field at Fenway to some degree just because it's such a weird outfield. But um, like I said, I'm, I'm on board with them trying to make that kid as versatile as he can be. All right. Well, again, this is uh, Chris Mason from uh, EagleTribune.com, Red Sox beat writer. And, uh, Chris, I'm looking here at uh, some uh, numbers about the Sox offense. I mean, we, we talked earlier about why the pitching uh, or why, you know, this turnaround uh, here, uh, you know, in May, their pitching has been uh, much stronger. But uh, the offense has two last eight games. Uh, the team as a as a team has a 909 OPS 17 in the last eight games 17 home runs 32 extra base hits and they're averaging uh, over eight and a 
half runs a game. Uh, you know, I, I know several of those games were at Fenway, but, you know, also, you know, and, and against Baltimore's pitching staff. But, uh, you know, the, the Red Sox uh, offense does seem to be finally coming around. But I would also make the argument, and again, you know, the certain talk show hosts will tell you, you know, there's reason to be pessimistic. Uh, the, the worst is yet to come. I would say some, to some degree, you know, even though the Red Sox have worked so hard to get back over 500 here, I think the best is yet to come with some of these hitters. I mean, J.D. Martinez has only recently just started to to hit the ball with uh, power in the last few games. I mean, Mookie Betts isn't really Mookie Betts yet. Bogarts. I mean, I would argue maybe the only guy who's really playing over his head right now in that lineup is the white-hot uh, Rafael Devers, who uh, I'm looking here. Uh, this month, he is hitting 426, 20 hits and 47 at-bats in the month of May for Devers, who also is trying to become only the uh, seventh Red Sox player all time to have four consecutive games with three or more hits. And uh, I don't know. Did you see this list, Chris, or do you want to try to guess? Uh, I don't know if you saw the list of the the guys who've done it in Red Sox history. Uh, I did not see the list, but I can imagine that it's pretty good company. When well, you got, like, Williams. No, yeah, Williams is not one of them, oddly enough. But the first four Wait. names you would uh, – yeah, I know. It, that's that's pretty amazing that's the case. But uh, if I told you Wade Boggs was on that list, that's certainly not a surprise. And I'm sure uh, between Carlton Fisk, Dom DiMaggio, and Bobby Doerr, none of those names would surprise you either. The last two names might surprise you a little bit. Jody Reed and most recently – here's one for you – Edgar Renteria. <laughs> <laughs> the one year he was here and he, you know, was, uh, would, uh, yeah, you know, had, had the stone glove. Yeah, no, I definitely wouldn't have gotten that either. Uh, but again, thanks uh, to uh, at Boston Sports in for some of that information. But yeah, you know, so again, getting back to the offense here, Chris, I mean, Devers is just, he has been on fire. And for someone who also owns him on his fantasy baseball team, uh, double reason to be happy. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, just talk about maybe him and then the fact that the rest of the offense to me hasn't really reached, uh, you know, the levels they reached last year. So there's no reason to think why this offense couldn't get even better. Yeah, I mean, Devers is actually who I was writing for tomorrow. Um, it's just, I, I think people take him for granted to some degree. I mean, Chavis is 10 months older than him, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that Devers yeah. is still 22 years old. Right. And, you know, hitting 336 with an 865 OPS, like, the sky's the limit with this kid. And he's going to make errors, but if you're a 22-year-old, usually you're making errors in front of, like, nobody down in, uh, I don't know, like the Hartford Yard Goats or something like that. Yeah, right. right. Um, it's funny you say that because I saw Devers hit a home run at the uh, Hartford Yard Goats ballpark. Uh, <laughs> was that that must have been two years ago? But yeah, it was just before he got called up. Yeah, but no, you're right about. I think you can look at the bottom third too. And they had the other night they had three guys below the Mendoza line, hitting seven, eight, nine. And so I think yeah, that's bound to get better, right? It's not going to get any worse in the bottom third. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, by the way, don't forget uh, to mention about Devers. He's played every game this year. That's another thing that's pretty impressive because I know there were times uh, that uh, Cora would try to, uh, you know, not play him against some tough lefties. But, uh, you know, and, and even the way he started the season, I mean, he wasn't really doing very much. It, it's really kind of in the last, like, two weeks as bad as exploded. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty impressive. I think he's I think he might be the only, as I'm looking down the roster, I believe he is the only uh, Red Sox player who is uh, yet to get a day off this year. Yeah, and I think one of the most encouraging things with him is that he's just not striking out either. 41 games, he has 24 Ks. Mookie struck out more than Endeavors this year, and that was always the biggest, like, okay, is he chasing pitches? Is he expanding the strike zone? No, like, he's he's staying in the zone, and, yeah, his OBP is over 400 because of it. Yeah, you know, and you know, again, talking about some guys who really doesn't have not seemed to have, uh, you know, you mentioned Betts, uh, two eighty nine, seven home runs. Those are decent pedestrian numbers, but not for uh, the reigning American League MVP. Uh, certainly, he he's got uh, you know room to get better. Even you know Bogarts too, hitting just uh, two sixty two, also with seven homers. But uh, yeah, I mean these guys, I, I kind of feel like, especially maybe they're just going to warm up with the weather. I know we've been through a terrible stretch of uh, spring weather here in uh, New England. Really outside of that West Coast road trip when they weren't hitting. I mean, that's about the only time they've had any kind of nice weather to play in. Yep, and I think uh, J.D. is someone that always kind of heats up with the weather, too. Um, his homers on Sunday were the first all year he's hit at Fenway, and there are so many balls that he hits that will just, like, die on the warning track in April, and you're like, ah, if, this was, if it was August, that thing is, like, 10 rows deep. Um, so, yeah, I think there's reason to believe that the offense is just going to keep getting better. Yeah, it, you know, uh, you had a really nice uh, story here too. Uh, speaking of uh, JD Martinez, you you, you talk uh, again about his uh, his hitting guru Craig uh, Wallenbrock, 
and uh, what he's done for uh, for JD, who's uh, you know you mentioned in the article how JD's spent most of his career always being kind of like the second guy on every team he's been on, uh, you know, and currently with the Red Sox, you know, a lot of people would say Mookie Betts is the face of the franchise, and you know JD kind of plays in the shadow, but that's you know again I think he he seems to almost like it that way. Yeah, I think he uh, he uses it as motivation. Um, you know, he's just someone that has never really felt his entire career that he got the respect that he deserved. Didn't get any D1 offers out of high school. Then was drafted in, like, the 20th round, DFA'd by the Astros. Um, then goes to Detroit, starts hitting, and he's second fiddle to Miggy. Then goes to Arizona, he's second fiddle to Goldschmidt. Now he's in Boston, and Mookie's the reigning MVP, right? So I think he's always kind of had that chip on his shoulder, and it made him into an absolute monster. Yeah, and I know he wants to give a lot of the credit to uh, to Craig uh, Wallenbrock. You know, and speaking of Wallenbrock, and uh, maybe the one guy I have we haven't really talked much about yet uh, with the Red Sox uh, everyday players uh, is Jackie Bradley Jr. And uh, you know the, the the great catch. Well, let's start with the with that catch he made in Baltimore. And I, I know I'll get critical here maybe in a moment, but uh, you know the the plays he makes. And granted, I I know that the. You know, the so-called experts might say, well, you know, he, he only probably saves you two or three games a year. But, I mean, he literally saved the Red Sox from losing a game at Camden Yards last week. I mean, when he just reached over in extra innings to take away that potential walk-off home run uh, by uh, off the bat of Trey Mancini. Oh, yeah, he very literally saved them that game. Um, but, I mean, that's I think that's why you stick with him, because he has the ridiculous club. Center field might be the most important position on the field. And uh, you, you kind of hope that he'll get hot because he's always been such a streaky hitter. But, I mean, obviously at this point at the plate, that has not been the uh, – well, he's been streaky, but not the good streaky. Yeah, not at all. Again, we, we, we kind of mentioned, I think, before coming on the air, the you know the 149 batting average, which is considered, I think, among the, the worst in baseball for players who have enough plate appearances to qualify for the batting title. And, and when we had you in studio, Chris, before the season, we talked a little bit, or you had brought up the fact that uh, uh, Bradley uh, sought out uh, Craig Wallenbrock, uh, JD's hitting guru, to try to straighten out uh, his swing. And you know, I'm not saying that we would have expected the results overnight, but the fact here we are six weeks into the year, a quarter of the way into the season, he's hitting, got the worst batting average in, in baseball among everyday players. So uh, when might we see uh, some of the benefits of his, uh, you know, being uh, tutelaged by uh, Wallenbrock? Well, it's one of those things where you certainly hope to see results quicker than this. I mean, he was kind of changing it on the fly last year um, after the All-Star game and was OPSing over 800 as he was doing that. And then you look at right now, it's like not only is he not hitting for average, but there is no power there either. He's yet to homer in 133 plate appearances. Um, So obviously you need far more than you're getting from him right now. Which I guess, again, may be another reason why they've got uh, Chavis potentially uh, grabbing an outfielder's glove and and putting him out there, you know, trying to maximize a a little bit of offense. But, uh, yeah, I I think, though, as you pointed out there with Bradley, you just kind of want to – you hope that, you know, you can ride this out and then wait for the hot month to come around. Of course, you don't know if it's going to be June, July, or, you know, maybe maybe you hope it's September or October again. But, uh, you know, I don't know if the the Red Sox can afford to keep him in the lineup that long if he's going to be uh, such a drag on on the rest of the uh, batting order. No, I'd agree. And it, it, it is crazy to um, just watch him and the difference between like when he looks lost at the plate and then when he gets hot, he looks like, I don't know, the best hitter in baseball, right? Um, but it's obviously something they're going to ride out now. And um, yeah, with Chavis and I don't know, coming back, maybe there's some point down the road where you're like, okay, well, we need to keep playing this kid and Jackie's going to sit down. But they obviously haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, and that's the weirdest thing about Jackie is he's not your prototypical streaky hitter. I think most streaky hitters, you know, they'll be white hot for two or three weeks, and then maybe they'll get cold for about 10, 14 days, and then they'll kind of pick it up again. It's a lot of ebbs and flows, but with with Bradley, it just kind of feels like it's sort of like one big you know, one big ebb, and then it just sort of dives down for, for months on end. It's like, I don't understand if if batting is such this thing, uh, you know, where it's a routine and you sort of get into your routine, you would think that it would be hard to fall into real deep, long slumps as long as you got your mechanics in order. And the, and the thing is, obviously, there's a month where Jackie does have all his mechanics in order and he can hit like crazy. So it's like, I, I just don't understand. It's got to be 
mind-boggling to, to any coach who's had to deal with him why he can't do it a little more consistently. Because, I mean, I, I don't think no one wants – I mean, I don't think anyone's asking JBJ to hit 300. Uh, but, I mean, if he could hit like a solid, you know, 260, 270 and just, you know, maybe keep the valleys from being so deep, uh, you know, given the defense he gives you, I, I think any anybody would – you know, Alex Cora would take that in a heartbeat. Oh, absolutely. And I don't – like – I, don't, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that, like, when they're slumping, the book is so clearly out on. Um, like, when he was really slumping last year, there's seriously Orioles where he kept striking out. And I think they threw – he saw 42 pitches in the series, and 39 were fastballs, and they were all up and in, and he just wasn't catching up to them. Um, but, it, yeah, it is just such, like, a unique, uh, unique way of slumping, I guess. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, well, you, you're looking ahead here, and you know, obviously, one of the you know, whenever we talk about the American League, and we always talk about the fact it feels like you know maybe two thirds of the American League is tanking or, or just not playing very hard. You you try to look around and find a few of the good teams, and you know, even with the Red Sox playing well, I mean, look at the teams they've played. I mean, the White Sox, the you know, the Orioles, the Mariners, who looked good early in the year, but now seem to have fallen on hard times. So. You know, you look ahead to a, a weekend series uh, at Fenway this coming weekend uh, against Houston. I mean, certainly, again, here we go, ALCS rematch. Uh, and uh, you know, what are your like? What are your thoughts on on the Astros and just and in general? I mean, you know, do you think the Red Sox have totally gotten out of their uh, out of their own way here, and you know that they've got things turned around uh, uh, for the season, or at least on a, on a better path at this point? I mean, my first thought with the Astros coming to town is thank God because there's finally going to be some competitive baseball. Um, and it just feels like so many of these series are against teams that, yeah, are tanking and it's not competitive. And so it, it, there's finally going to be some juice this weekend, you know, with a team like Houston coming in. But, um, yeah, no, I, I do think the Red Sox have gotten out of their own way. And so much, I think, comes back to the starting pitching. Um, at least the three day of healthy right now, but when they're giving you the starts they're giving you, you know they're going to have a chance. It's going to be a competitive game. And, uh, yeah, so I, I do think uh, it, it'll be a good measuring stick series. That's for sure. Is it? Does it uh, kind of boggle your mind that Luke Heichel hasn't signed anywhere yet, that he's still a free agent? Is he just asking for too much money at this point? Uh, I'm surprised he hasn't even just gone back to the Astros. So with Keuchel, it's interesting because I think there's a few different factors coming into play. The first is that if teams wait now, so everyone's waited this long, right? If they wait two and a half more weeks, June 1st, they won't have to give up any draft pick compensation. Uh, um, okay. And they would if they signed him right now. But beyond that, I think it's uh, kind of the style of pitcher that he is. Like, teams are valuing contact pitchers less and less. Like, they want swings and misses. They want strikeouts. And Keiko's not one of those guys, right? He won a Cy Young as a sinker baller. But, you know, he's, what is he, 31 now maybe? Um Mm. And and people hit him like that's that's the thing. And I mean, if there's anyone that Keiko's market should be scaring the heck out of, I think it's Rick Porcello, because I, I think they're very similar pitchers, and they're like, yeah, like pitching to contact. They're like Porcello's going to hit free agency at the same age, and I, I just think that kind of pitcher, the workhorse, is becoming like less valued. So I think mm. Keiko's ice cold market's got to be scaring the heck out of Rick. Yeah, I don't understand why a workhorse would be devalued as well. Although you, you bring up a really good point about Porcello, and maybe that explains why Porcello was at least uh, you know early this uh, you know during the off season and maybe even into spring training why he was you know almost begging for a conversation with management uh, and his agent to you know maybe talk about getting an extension on his current deal, which you know as you said runs out the end of this year. I, I think there still is a place though for a workhorse, and I think we talked about this when we we had John with us in March that. You know, if you're going to have a bunch of, you know, premier or ace caliber type arms, but all coming with the risk of, of going down with injury at any moment, you need someone like a Porcello at the back end of the staff who you know you can count on to give you close to 200 innings. And yeah, you're not asking him to get like, you know, he's not supposed to pitch like an ace, but he's just supposed to kind of pick up the rest of the staff when, you you know, you've had to blow out your bullpen in other games. And I mean, Porcello gave you, I mean, perfect example was the, the game on Saturday against Seattle. I mean, Sox are down 4 nothing early Porcello looks really bad but then he kind of straightened himself up in game and the Red Sox are able to come back and, and win that game uh, partly because Porcello you know kind of stuck they hung in there with him and they let him go and you know he ends up pitching almost a no-hit ball after that first inning 
Oh, I'd agree. I mean, and he, he had a great quote after where he thought, he said that uh, he really liked that win. He felt like it was a personality win. But I, I just think it's the way the game is trending with nerds taking over. And, you know, well, we don't want them to see a lineup through the third time. Um, like Blake Snell went to Cy Young last year with 180 innings. I, I just think front offices are valuing starting pitchers differently than they had in the past. And I'm not necessarily saying that's right. I just think it's what's happening now. Why do I get the scary feeling when the next collective bargaining agreement comes up uh, in, a, in a couple more years that uh, one of the big things I think owners are going to go uh, try to put on the table is have an expand beyond the current 25-man roster for the full season so they can add, like, say, five more relief pitchers, and then you're just going to see everyone playing like the Tampa Bay Rays where, you know, you, you maybe you'll have one one or two starters who could give you five or six innings, and everyone else is just going to go maybe an inning or two max. I actually just had their baseball reference page pulled up. Do you know how many guys pitched 100 innings for them last year? Who, for, for the Rays? For the Rays, the 2018 Rays. Uh, last year, uh, I'll say one. <laughs> no, I'll say, no, I'll say two. It was two. It was Snell and Yarbrough. Oh, it was. Okay. Well, then. And then they brought in Glass now, but now he looks like he could be seriously hurt. And uh, one of the other reasons why the Rays have kind of come back to the pack in the American League East. Yeah, I agree. Um, they're just such a fascinating team. Like, <laughs> I loved uh, comparing Kevin Cash to the uh, Black Knight from Monty Python last year. Where it's like, oh, we're going to trade everyone. Oh, no, it's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. We're <laughs> yeah. going to keep winning. We're still going to win 90 games. Like, And they did. <laughs> it's, yeah. And, yay, they're in first place right now. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, that may not last when the Yankees get completely healthy and the Red Sox uh, really hit their stride. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's going to uh, – Well, I mean, I like that they signed Charlie Morton this offseason, too. I think that's uh, like, okay, this team is trying to win moves, and they're acknowledging that not everything's going to be bullpenning. And, I mean, he's been great for them, too. 3-0 with a 2-6-4. Hmm. Yeah, well. Yeah, I, I expect the Rays are going to stay on the hunt all year. I mean, uh, especially if the if the Red Sox and Yankees, between their injuries and the Red Sox slow start, if neither one of them is going to win, you know, well over 100 games, then I would expect it's going to be a three-team race in the American League East. Why not? I mean, maybe this year 95-96 wins is enough to win the division, and I think all three of those teams are, are capable of reaching that number. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it just... The Rays are obviously the team that you weren't really expecting to be this good, but I mean they're they're showing no signs that they aren't. Um, they're they're just playing really good baseball. Yeah, they keep finding a way, right? I mean, I'm sure they're going to find a way to work around this glass now injury as well. They'll just again they'll they'll have another game with uh, you know five different relievers going to help them get the win. Again, we're joined here by uh, Chris Mason from EagleTribune.com, and you can follow uh, Chris on Twitter, and I would recommend you do. His Twitter handle is at by Chris Mason. He's the beat writer for the Red Sox, but uh, uh, Chris has a, a very uh, unique uh, way of uh, unique sense of humor. I'm reading uh, your, your the on the top of your Twitter feed, uh, and I have to ask you this question. Uh, did you really recently break your finger playing air hockey? I mean, that's your pinned tweet that you seem to be taking. <laughs> I don't think pride. it was actually broken, but it was pretty banged up. I couldn't bend it for a couple days. But, hey, you, you got to play to win the game. <laughs> I'm just trying to think how, wait, wait, which version of this is this is air hockey with the, the air coming out of the table and you got the little mallet there, right, that you're, yep. you're pushing the puck. Okay, well, yep. yeah, I, so what happened? You took a puck to the finger. Was that what it was? Uh, someone shot it and your hand, your finger was in front of the puck there and, or in front of the handle or something? No, there was, it was a loose puck right at center ice in no man's land. And me and my buddy both went for it. Oh, that's, yeah. That. I got it, but he got my hand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I remember having some close calls from back uh, that back in the day as well well let's uh let's kind of segue a little bit here as i mentioned at the very top of uh this uh, uh program I, I talked about the uh, all the success uh, that the uh, the boston sports teams have had which is incredible 29 and 12 postseason record since the red sox uh got things started in october uh with their incredible 11 and 3 uh roll through the uh the postseason and uh, you know everyone else has picked up the mantle since then the patriots uh en route to their uh sixth super bowl and uh, you know the Bruins now, uh, who seem to be uh, finishing series potentially, uh, you know, earlier and earlier. They, they went to seven games with Toronto, were able to dispatch of uh, Columbus in six games, and now it looks like they're going to be taking down the former Hartford Whalers. And what I think, I, I kind of thought going into the series, there was the potential for a sweep, and I've seen nothing in in the first two games that uh, is deterring me from that opinion. Oh no way! I mean, that was. Uh... One of the most dominant playoff games I can remember watching uh, was that yesterday. Yeah, it was just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, when they when they go up six nothing, it's like wow. 
this is the Eastern Conference Finals. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I mean, well, it's you know, it's not the one that you might have expected, given you know uh, Tampa Bay, Washington, Pittsburgh all eliminated in the first round. But uh, this is this is what's left, and it, it's a maybe a fortunate path for the Bruins. But uh, they're they're the best of the the best of the teams left standing uh, by far, and. You know, hey, you know, who, you know, they're they're playing their best right now too. Like you said, I mean, they they, they had the big you know blowout. Uh, I mean, they certainly look like they're just head and shoulders above this Carolina team that's been overachieving their way through the postseason. But uh, you know, maybe maybe things will change when they uh, you know go down and uh, play down in uh, Raleigh. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it just it, it just feels like right now every Bruin is is playing at the top of their game, and you know, a lot of that goes to Tuka Rask, who is uh, you know probably the the oldest guy on this current regime of players that hasn't won a Stanley Cup. And he's, you know, for him, I think there's, uh, knowing how close he is now, I think he, uh, he maybe he can see the uh, the chance for a championship uh, within sight. I'd agree with that. And I just look at um, the fact that they got through Toronto without the first line doing much, right? And, like, so much secondary scoring was kind of like, okay, well, how good are they going to be when everything clicks? And obviously now they're clicking on all cylinders. Um but yeah, I mean, Rask has been playing out of his mind. It's the best I've seen him play easily, except for funny people are very quick to forget that I think it was 2013 Eastern Conference Final against the Penguins. Mm-hmm. Uh, being swept and Rask was ridiculous. And you know, I'm I'm a very uh, I'm pro Tuca. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he gets the respect he deserves. I think he's an exceptional goalie and. I think he's showing it right now. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Unfortunately, all he's really remembered for at this point in his career is that one Stanley Cup final in the 2013 season, and everyone just remembers the last two minutes of the the last game he played that year uh, when the Blackhawks got two quick goals, and, and that was the end of that. And uh, But you're right. He is much better than that. He's been so durable. I mean, and, you know, he certainly, uh, you know, maybe he's not a guy like a Tim Thomas who can, like, stand on his head and, and you, know, you know, be pitching shutouts left and right, but he's just... He's always steady. He's always he's there. He's not usually prone to letting up the soft goals, which is I think just as equally important as being uh, you know a spectacular goalie. Just make sure you stop everything you're supposed to. Yeah, and so my thing with Timmy is obviously he's unbelievable during that 2011 run, like maybe the best I've ever seen anyone play goalie. But he made so many ridiculous saves, like so many spectacular saves, because he was kind of like out of position or had overplayed, and but like always could recover, but. That's why I think Rask is so steady and so disciplined and, like, honestly makes good saves look boring, and people yeah. don't appreciate that the same way. Yeah, no, that I think that sums it up uh, pretty well uh, with them, uh, no doubt. I think if, uh, you know, I know they're trying to hype up, you know, Dougie Hamilton's return to, to Boston now that he's, he's wearing, uh, you know, Carolina red, but really the potential for a Stanley Cup Finals matchup with San Jose kind of looms in the distance and hard to believe, but after all these years, Joe Thornton is still playing out there. Uh, uh, you know, I know he's not quite the factor he used to be with the Sharks, but uh, I think, you know, he's still searching for his first Stanley Cup, and, you know, it looks like if he's going to have to do it, or if he's going to get a chance to do it he's going to have to go through his former team to do so oh yeah i mean what an unbelievable cup final that would be and <laughs> especially like oh yeah that that's the one that i'm rooting for uh, i want to see the sharks in the cup i think that'd be awesome just mm. with thornton um but i believe it's still the only mvp in nhl history to be traded during an mvp season yeah he wanted uh, he wanted no four like split between the two teams or oh five <laughs> wow that's right yeah i forgot it i think you i think you're right on that one yep uh, well, I mean, if there's one of uh, the uh, the Boston sports teams that hasn't performed very well, but it's a team you've covered in the past uh, for the Eagle Tribune, that is uh, the Boston Celtics. And uh, uh, a, a frustrating season, to say the least, came to a probably not very surprising end. We were hopeful that uh, the ups and downs and the inconsistencies of the regular season would turn themselves around. And after they won their first five playoff games, it, it looked like that might be the case. But all of a sudden, uh, that that game one uh, win over Milwaukee kind of woke up the Bucks, who then went out and showed why they are the best team in the Eastern Conference this year. Uh, and for the Celtics now, uh, well, just your thoughts overall on on the Celtics season. Uh, is it you know is it a true disappointment that the way they got ceremoniously you know swept out of the well practically swept out of the playoffs? And and I guess what do you see as the future ahead for them? Oh, I think it's absolutely disappointing, especially when you look at the way they lost Game 5. How, how is there not more fight there? How do you not, you know, how do you just mail it in like that? Uh, I think... Well, I would almost question that, you know, how about Games 3 and 4? They weren't showing a lot of, on their home floor, they weren't showing a lot of fight. 
uh, which kind of, I think, led to Game 5 maybe not being as surprising as it, as it turned out to be. No, I'd agree with that. I just think anytime you finally get the back, like, actually against the wall, that, okay, this is where this team's going to show up, and they're going to fight, and they're going to... But they did not, man. They, uh, <laughs> they absolutely mailed that in. Yeah, I thought the worst they might have shot was that Game 7 last year in the Eastern Conference Finals against Cleveland. Well, they managed to find a newer low uh, in that uh, last game uh, against Milwaukee. Uh, what do you, you know, Chris, uh, what do you think is the, the future here? I mean, I think everything right now kind of hinges, the entire future of the franchise hinges on on whatever Kyrie Irving feels like doing. Because uh, I, I think at this point, if you're looking at it from Danny Ainge's standpoint, I think Danny's, you know, despite you know, the mercurialness of uh, Kyrie's personality. I think Danny Ainge's want to push all the chips to the middle of the table, go all in on Kyrie, try to swing a trade for Anthony Davis, try to talk him into signing a long-term extension. I mean, all of that could blow up in their faces, but ultimately, even before any of this gets started, Ainge is going to, you know, offer that max deal to Kyrie Irving that he can't get anywhere else, you know, more money by $50 million than he can get anywhere else, and then it's going to be up to Kyrie to say whether he wants to come back or not. But what, what do you think ultimately is going to happen there? I just have no idea what Kyrie's thinking, really, ever. Well, I'm glad you agree. I'm in agreement with you there because as soon as the season ended, I said I have no idea what direction this franchise is going in now. No, right? <laughs> like, if you know what Kyrie's thinking, go to Vegas and cash in. <laughs> right. I don't think uh, – I really don't have any idea what he wants or what's going on. But, I mean, obviously he's the first domino that has to fall either way. So, I, I mean, ultimately it all comes back to that guy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously Ainge loves Davis. And would try and swing that trade. And I think there's a reason the Pelicans didn't deal him yet. And I think they're waiting to see what Danny can do. Because at some point, like, even if Kyrie and AD is the best way to go, like, at some point, Danny's got to make his play. Like, he's had all these draft picks forever. He's had um, all these young stars the teams want. At some point, you're going to make a deal, right? So maybe yeah. maybe this is the summer that happens. I think it has to be. Everything has to come to a head now or else it's not going to happen at all because you just, you know, you're sort of at this crossroads and it's going to be, you know, whether, you know, Irving decides to stay or go and that's going to probably determine exactly how uh, how Danny wants to play this because, frankly, if Irving does want to leave, I, I can't imagine that at that point Danny would want to uh, deal for Davis, although I think is what the NBA is currently showing you. You got to have one or two real big stars. I mean, yep. obviously, you know, you, you're looking at an Eastern Conference final this year with a couple of with some some new blood in there in Milwaukee and Toronto. But you know, you got Giannis uh, for the Bucks, and you've got uh, you know Kai Kai we uh, 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 Kai Kai. Why am I mispronouncing his name now? Kawhi. Kawhi. Sorry, I was I was getting I had Kyrie on the brain, so it's Kawhi. Yeah, Kawhi. You, you obviously, you must have saw that shot uh, to end the uh, the the playoff series against Philadelphia is going to go down as one of the most uh, improbable shots in history, I suppose. Uh, at least oh, yeah. setting a record for a number of bounces on the rim before finally dropping. Uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, these are teams though that you've got the that one big star, and Kyrie just doesn't seem to measure up to those guys, and so he needs to sort of, you know, obviously the one time he, he's won a championship, LeBron was his guy, and he was riding in the sidecar, and maybe that's what Kyrie is best at doing is riding in the sidecar. I don't right now the closest thing I think on the trade market potentially that could fill that one role or that that number one guy role would be someone like Davis. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um... But you do need that guy in the NBA, like, so badly. You look at, before, even before, like, KD went to the Warriors, like, that, that step team that won was kind of an aberration, and I think that's why everybody liked them right off the bat, right? Because, I mean, you had Steph, who was unconscious, and Clay Thompson knocking down all these threes, but that was the exception to the rule. And then they get Durant, and then they turn into a wagon, and then there's just no stopping them. Like, I think the NBA is a league where you absolutely need that guy. Yeah, it's, uh, I would have to agree with that. It's like, how can you, you know... Yeah, just yeah, you haven't. Other than I think maybe those Detroit Pistons uh, about ten or twelve years ago, they're really I can't think of another single team that didn't have like a, you know that that go-to guy and maybe that second guy who's who's really good. Although again, you know, also you look at the way the game's changing and three-point shooting seems to rule. And you know, it, it almost feels like if if you're the Celtics and you bring in someone like Davis, he's not a three-point shooter, so you you've kind of made yourself even more of a of a good low post presence, which is good. And you need rebounding too, but you also need guys on the outside who can shoot. I, I guess they hope that maybe Gordon Hayward's going to return to the form he had uh, before injury. I mean, he's uh, somewhat of a three-point shooter, but otherwise, I don't know where else you, where else you're getting that from. Yeah, I think Hayward is just such a wild card moving forward. Like, 
he's the one guy on that team more than anyone. That it's like, okay, what are you going to get from him on a given night? And obviously Brad's sticking with him. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, as we wrap up here, Chris, back to baseball really quick. Uh, you know, from what you've seen here in the early going, any uh, any surprises around uh, uh, the American League or maybe uh, Major League Baseball as a whole? Uh, anything you've seen that uh, you, you think uh, might last or maybe uh, uh, someone, uh, some team playing with fool's gold? You know, I thought the biggest surprise right out of the shoot for me was the Mariners because I thought they were going to be terrible. But they've uh, now they're starting to play like I expected them to play. Um. But the, the Twins are another team that's, like, just playing really good baseball right now. Uh, they're leading the AL Central. And that's an interesting one just because, you know, I looked at some of the moves the Indians made this offseason and kind of felt like they think they're playing with house money and they're going to win this division regardless, even if it's at, like, 90 wins. But the way the Twins are playing, yeah, they're uh, – yeah, the Twins are four games up on the Indians right now. So they've been uh, – I'll, I'll give them my number one biggest surprise right out the shoot. Yeah, well, I, I I would definitely put it there too uh, with their uh, director of baseball operations, uh, Derek Falvey, uh, former Lynn Mass native, also one of my former broadcast partners many moons ago. I, unfortunately, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been able to work that into anything. I can't even get him. I can't even get him on for a podcast interview. But so it's, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm happy for him, and uh, he worked very hard. Actually, it, it's interesting. He was in the Cleveland organization. Uh, it was kind of groomed through the the system. There was an assistant. To to uh, Shapiro, the general manager in Cleveland, uh, and then got the opportunity. The, the Twins called him and asked him to just head up uh, baseball ops. Uh, and, and so far, he has made some really nice moves. Again, that's a team and a market that's kind of limited by uh, their budget, but uh, yep. they've they've gone out and spent a little bit. I mean, I think they've you know they've loosened the, the purse strings for for Derek to uh, be able to make a couple of moves out there. No, I'd agree. And I mean, you're proofing the pudding right now. They're yeah, twenty five and fourteen. So, they're, uh, yeah, they're probably my biggest surprise right away. And then, you well, know, the one division that I always try and keep my eye on is the NL East. Like, I think it's such it's kind of like a damning testament to where the game's at right now. And when you get a division like that where it feels like four teams are genuinely trying, that that's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. But that, that that's how I feel about the NL East. So, um, yeah, we got old friend Gabe Kapler in Philadelphia uh, trying to uh, – get things uh, going there and trying to, uh, you know, probably massage some egos along the way with, uh, you know, you got uh, Bryce Harper and that mega contract uh, that you uh, are dealing with. But there's a lot of talent there in Philly, and they got a, a ballpark that's conducive to offense. And, uh, yeah, it's – yeah, you're right, though. All the teams in that, uh, you know, uh, that division are contending. Actually, back to Cleveland for a quick second. Another thing that, that might hurt the Indians here is, uh, you know, how long it's going to be before Corey Kluber comes back. You mentioned that they probably uh, – the Indians probably thought they were playing, uh, you know, with, uh, with with house money. But, uh, yeah, I don't think they anticipated that they were going to lose Kluber for an extended period, which I, I think is going to put a little wear and tear on the rest of their rotation, which, frankly, isn't really – wasn't really that deep to start with. And, uh, you know, I mean, now Trevor Bauer is kind of the ace of that uh, of that staff uh, until Kluber comes back and right now I mean given that you know that injury that he uh, he suffered I think it might be a while before we see him again oh yeah they definitely weren't banking on uh on Kluber going down but uh yeah Bauer man what a what an interesting guy just an interesting case of like <laughs> yeah. somebody kind of willing themselves into being an ace never seen anything like it but um yeah he's someone that's throwing a lot of innings too he's uh already at 59 which I I mean I guess shouldn't seem that high but i just had the red sox page up and like pretty sure no one else is over 45 with them uh well yeah you're right i'm looking at it right now too actually oddly enough uh the guy leading the staff in innings is probably the guy that they probably uh, i'm sure the whole organization saying we don't want him leading right now that'd be chris sale at his 44 innings but you're right it's still at least uh, 10 behind bauer and uh you know, uh, 44 in eight starts, so that's six innings a start. I guess he's still kind of averaging what he's always been, uh, you know, other than the, you know, the slow start he had uh, to the season notwithstanding. And, you know, obviously they'd like him if he had a few more wins uh, to his record. But, uh, you know, overall, uh, I guess they can't really complain too much. No, I agree with you there. All right. Well, uh, we will uh, wrap this up, Chris. I really appreciate you spending the uh, time uh, talking to us here. And uh, I promise next time we have you on, uh, hopefully uh, your uncle will be available and uh, we can uh, really uh, have some uh, some fun discussion here. 
Hey, it sounds good, Todd. It's always awesome catching up with you. All right. Well, thank you again uh, to uh, Chris Mason. You can check out all of Chris's work uh, on Twitter. Again, his handle is at by Chris Mason, and you can read him at the Eagle Tribune. Find his work uh, at eagletribune.com. Want to once again uh, thank Chris for uh, joining us here on the Toddcast. And of course, just a uh, reminder: don't forget to follow us on social media by searching Timeout for Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter at TOST BMC. That is our Twitter handle, and you can get the links there to the latest uh, TOST Toddcast as well as our monthly TV shows. Our next uh, show, which will be streaming live on BelmontMedia.org, Howie and I will return on May 21st, uh, this coming uh, Tuesday night. No Bruins playoff game that night, so uh, uh, lo and behold, uh, hopefully you can tune in. We'll be talking lots of Bruins uh, for sure that evening, along with everything else going on in the world of sports. So uh, until then. Well, again, big thanks to uh, to Chris Mason from the Eagle Tribune, Red Sox beat writer for talking the Red Sox and some other stuff uh, this hour as well. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Thank you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network. <laughs>